Isaiah 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast my covenant, these will I bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Great, thanks Ozzy. And uh, can I welcome you again? A particularly warm welcome if you're visitors here this morning. It's great to see you with us. Uh, as um, Neil's already mentioned, we're starting a new series this week looking at the book of Isaiah. And we're going to be focusing in this series on the back end of Isaiah from chapter 56 through to the end, chapter 66. Um, I'm really excited about this, um, partly because it's a fantastic book, uh, partly because I've never taught this book in any kind of detail before, and so it's been great looking at it, and because I really believe and pray that it will help us where we are as a church. Um, So before I pray, I just want, by way of introduction, to ask you a question. Um, How big is God to you? How big is God to you? Uh, I was forced to think about this this week because the book of Isaiah is all about God. Um, Just listen to these words. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's a kind of throwaway line that you read in the Bible, but that is staggering when you stop to consider what it says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Uh, You might know we live in what's called the Milky Way. That's our galaxy, okay? Now, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across, okay? Now, a light year is the distance that light can travel in one year, and light travels at 186,000 miles every second, okay? 186,000 miles every second, continually for a full year. That's one light year. And our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 100,000 light years across. It is utterly vast. Uh, In 2007, I was in Morocco on the edge of the Sahara Desert. We rode out into the desert uh, on camels. Never do it. It's on your bucket list of 100 things to do in your life. Never do it. It's so painful. But we got out into the desert, and that night, we looked up and saw the stars. There's no light pollution because you're miles from any city. There's no noise because there's no vehicles anywhere nearby. It's one of the most beautiful and peaceful places I've ever been. And when you look up and you see the stars, they are staggering. Well, scientists have worked out that if you were to count all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy, one every second, one 
two, three, four, five, and carry on, and you carried on day and night for 2,500 years, you would only just probably get to have counted every star in our Milky Way. That is how big it is. But this is the most staggering thing that blew me away this week. If you think of the Milky Way 100,000 light years across, and that is like one penny, the size of a penny piece, the universe, scientists believe, is the size of the North American continent. How many pennies, 100,000 light years across, can you fit into North America? It's staggering, isn't it? And then you come to the book of Isaiah, which we're going to be unpacking, and you come to chapter 40, a few chapters before our chapter, and you read this. God says, to whom will you compare me, and who is my equal? Suddenly those words take on a whole new depth, don't they? God is massive. And as we come to the book of Isaiah, if I was to try and summarize the book of Isaiah, it's really this. How can God, in all his greatness, know you and me? Think on the size of the scale I've just been describing where you are compared to God. How can God, in all his greatness, know me? That is what the book of Isaiah is all about. How we can be reconciled or joined to God. And the amazing thing about the book of Isaiah is it teaches one truth. And it's this, that God is absolutely passionate about knowing you. And when you see the scale and size of the universe and you realize where you are, that is staggering. Absolutely staggering. Now, it's a daunting book, and I hope that as I begin this series, as well as he jumps in in the middle and as Neil finishes it off, I hope as we help you to understand the book of Isaiah, you'll get a bit of a better feel for the whole book, because it is a complex book. But more importantly, we hope and pray that you'll get a better feel and grasp of God because he's actually the center of the whole book. Even though the book is written by Isaiah, it's called Isaiah, it's not about Isaiah at all. And in fact, he doesn't appear that much in the book. The focus of the whole book is God. And he is a God who is passionate about knowing us. So as we come to this passage, we pray and pray that that awesome God would show himself to us, that we would love him more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are staggered when we think of some of those statistics about just how big you are. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And yet the staggering truth in this incredible book is that that God, the living God, wants to know each of us personally and has made that possible through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we come to look at this amazing book together in the coming weeks, I pray that you would open each of our eyes to understand just how big you are to understand the depth of love that you have for each one of us and that we would indeed have a living encounter with the living God. Amen. Amen. Okay, you've got this guy Isaiah. He is a prophet. That means he's a spokesperson for God and his role is to speak words that God gives him. Uh, he comes and he has a 40-year ministry predominantly around Jerusalem. And he's prophesying about 700 years before Jesus comes. That's who Isaiah is. His name, Isaiah, means Yahweh, or the Lord, is salvation. So his whole name summarizes the message he's going to proclaim, that the Lord is salvation. Well, before we jump into this little passage, I want to give you, I do this quite a lot, but I think this is helpful. I want to give you a potted history of the whole of the Bible again. The reason is that I want us to see again that the whole Bible is one story. It's not just random bits stuck together. So you'll follow the story, okay? I'll come over here. Hopefully I won't run out of space. Just see if you can follow me. You've got creation. 
Genesis chapter 3, you've got, oh, you've got the fool. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> you've got the fool. Okay, a little later on, Genesis chapter 12, the promises made by God to Abraham. Then God's people are taken away into slavery in Egypt. They're rescued by Moses, the great exodus, the Passover. And then eventually they get led into the promised land by Joshua. And eventually in time they get to a city, God's city, Jerusalem. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, which is the tent that represents God's presence with his people. And they bring the tent and they bring it into the city. And then beginning with David and later with his son Solomon, they build a temple in the middle of the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's a symbol of God's presence being right at the heart of his people. And you think, well, things are going really well. God had made amazing promises to Abraham. And now God's people are together. And they're in a place. And they're beginning to be blessed. And you think maybe the promise of Abraham is being fulfilled. But then something amazing happens. And here's a bit of history. In 930 BC, the kingdom split. There were 12 tribes that made up Israel. Well, 10 of them went off and were called the Northern Kingdom or Israel. Two of them went off and they were called the Southern Kingdom or Judah. And the physical split of God's people was symbolic of the split of their hearts, that they'd taken their eyes off God and so they'd become broken apart. And suddenly we think we're at the glory place, the place that God had promised, and suddenly everything just is shattered and falls apart. I want to show you a few photos. The British Museum is one of the most amazing places. If you've never been there, you need to go down to the British Museum and see some of the biblical artifacts. I want to show you some of these things because it proves that what is in the Bible is true. But I want to, I'll just give you a little bit of a history of what happened to God's people after that split and the mess they got into. Uh, on the screen there, you can see the chap here. This is King Shalmaneser. Isn't that a cool name? I, I told Jim, I need to know the name of your son for Sunday. And I said, if you don't tell us, then we're going to call him Shalmaneser. Anyway, that's Shalmaneser. He's a foreign king an Assyrian king, and this chap here is a guy called Jehu. He's an Israelite king. In other words, he's one of God's kings over God's people. What's he doing? He's paying tribute to a foreign king. What is going on? Here is the king over God's people. He's not worshipping the living God. He's worshipping a foreign king. Uh, If you go down to the British Museum, you'll see that on what's called the Black Obelisk. It's amazing, and you can see the picture of what is happening a little snapshot of the mess that God's people have got into. Well, Isaiah steps on the scene in 740 BC, and he comes and preaches a message of judgment. He's saying, turn back to God, because you are in a mess, and there is hope if you turn back to the living God. Well, things get really bad, and in 722 BC, uh, that king, um, Shalmaneser, takes off the northern kingdom Israel into exile, out of Jerusalem. A little bit later, 701 BC, you get this chap here. This is a guy called Sennacherib, another great name. He's another Assyrian king, and here is a picture of the siege of Jerusalem. So you can see the siege works here. This is the great big um, hill up into Jerusalem where the temple is. And they lay siege on God's people, and you're saying, why? God's people are now under attack from a foreign nation. Uh, It's terrible. There's a picture here, you can't see it, of a man being impaled. There's a picture here of a man being flailed alive. That's where your skin is cut from your body while you're still alive. Absolutely brutal. But God's city is under attack. It's called, uh, the, thing, the picture on the right is called Taylor's Prism. You'll see that in the British Museum. And there's an inscription on it that says this. Hezekiah caged like a trapped bird. Hezekiah was one, another one of the Jewish kings. And he was trapped in God's own city. Everything became a complete and utter mess. And then in the 6th century BC, 
the Assyrians had gone and their, their power had dwindled and then the Babylonian Empire rose up and you might know the name Nebuchadnezzar he then marches on Jerusalem and he carts whoever's remaining off into exile in Babylon a complete and utter mess now that may be history that you sort of washes over your head you might think why are you showing me pictures from the British Museum I'm showing these pictures because they prove that what was going on did happen and what was going on was a complete mess and so you think of the promises that God made to Abraham I will make you into a great nation I will give you a land and I will bless you and suddenly now away in exile a foreign superpower over, over them you look at those promises and you say God you clearly can't be in control no way they're no longer a united people they've been split a half and taken different ways they're not in Jerusalem they're in some foreign land and they're clearly not being blessed they're under the power and subjugation of a foreign nation people like Daniel went with the exiles now not everyone went it was really the urban elite the intellectuals the scientists the doctors all the people who basically ran society and were really important in those days they all went what did they leave in Jerusalem just the rural peasants and you look at Jerusalem after what had happened and it was completely decimated. This is God's city. And you think, well, God, clearly you're not in control. What hope is there for my people? What a complete and utter mess. And the prophet Jeremiah writes a book called Lamentations. It's a lament. He's on the edge of the riverbanks of Jerusalem. He cries out to God and this is what he says. How deserted lies the city? It was so full of people. How like a widow is she? who once was great among the nations, she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. You think about our world in all of its brokenness. Do you ever cry and weep at the brokenness of our world? You cry out, where is God? When's he going to come and fix the mess of our world? When's he going to end the brokenness that we all experience? But what does God say through the prophet Jeremiah? They will be taken to Babylon... And there they will remain until the day I come for them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Well, by the time you get to chapter 56 in Isaiah, Isaiah is long dead. But the words that he spoke continue to speak into the situation that God's people are in. And chapters 56 through to the end of 66, which is what we're teaching in the next few weeks, is a prophecy speaking to God's people when they were in exile and about to return home. And it's all a message of hope. It's a message for a broken world, a message of hope. And have a look, if you jump down at the passage now. Verse 2. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Now in the Old Testament, there were laws given to God's people. The laws weren't just arbitrary laws where God just says, just obey me because I tell you to. The laws were designed to enable God to stay at the center of his people. And if God's people obeyed him and followed him and loved him, they would be blessed. So what God is saying here is, when you listen to my voice, when I am at the center of your life, I can bless you. That's why two weeks ago when I was preaching here, I made the point, the single most important thing for any of us in life is to know God. Because when we know God, we experience the blessing that he pours out upon us. Not necessarily material blessing, but spiritual blessing. A sense of purpose. A sense of security. A sense of uh, truthfulness of our sin being forgiven. That is the blessing he's speaking of. But here's the amazing thing. When God's people came back from exile, it wasn't just a return of his people. It was also a redefining of who God's people are. 
See, historically in the Old Testament, there was the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. Now, why were they God's people and everyone else wasn't? Because God chose to set his affection on them. Not because they're any better than anyone else. You read all through the Old Testament, God says time and time again, I didn't save you because of your righteousness. He just set his heart and love on them to show people the depth of the love that he has. To show them the depth of the faithfulness that he has. And as I was being prayed earlier, the whole point of God's people was to live in amongst the nations, to be a blessing to the nations. So then look at verse 3, because this should come as a shock to you, and it would have come as a massive shock to God's people. God, through Isaiah, says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, who wants to know the Lord, say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Well, let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Well, if you know your Bible, in Exodus chapter 12, God has said, No foreigner can enter the assembly of God and take the Passover. No eunuch could do that. These were things that kept God's people distinct from everybody else. But suddenly now, these sort of people are being invited in. And what we're seeing is a little picture of the heart of God where God is choosing to spend eternity with people who outside of him have no hope. So when you think of a, a relationship between a, a parent and a small child, okay, I've never had a child of my own, but I see children, very small babies, and it always strikes me as amazing how utterly dependent babies are on their parents. Uh, parents can't, uh, children, uh, babies can't do much for themselves. They can make a lot of noise and a lot of mess, but beyond that, they can't do much. They're completely reliant on their father and their mother. And what does the father and mother do to a small child? They nurture the child. They look after the child. They raise the child. And part of that is instruction and discipline. But it's for the child's benefit. That's a bit like the relationship between God the father and his children, his people. He cares for us. He nurtures us. He wants us to flourish. He disciplines us. But the picture you get here in Isaiah is not just the father or mother with the child, but it's also the picture of them adopting another child. See, God doesn't just care for his people, his child. He's also passionate about people who have no parent, who he wants to adopt into his family. And that is what he's going on about here. Because in this passage, God is completely redefining who God's people are. Not just the people who are descended from Abraham, but the people who have trusted the promises given to Abraham. That's completely different. And it's utterly staggering for you and me. So it should be a complete shock. We're here in the passage. God speaks to these eunuchs, those who wouldn't have been allowed to be part of the people of God, and says, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Everything's changed. And he says to the foreigners, those who weren't excluded, who weren't allowed in as part of God's people, he says, verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house. Now think about the significance of that. Who was allowed in the house of God in the Old Testament? the Israelites, and who was allowed into the right in? The, the priests only, one tribe. And who was allowed into the Holy of Holies? One priest, the high priest, and only once a year. You couldn't go into God's presence. And suddenly here in this prophecy, God is saying, a foreigner can come into my house of prayer. Well, the vast majority of us are foreigners. We're not descended from Abraham. We are these people who God has set his heart on and brought into his family. Not on the basis of our family pedigree, but on the basis of faith and trust in the promises that God had given to Abraham. Well, how is all that possible? Do you see, in the earlier chapters that we didn't look at, chapter 52, God has said, my servant will act wisely. 
And then in chapter 54, he says, the Holy One, which is a name given ultimately of Jesus that comes 26 times in Isaiah. He says, the Holy One will be your Redeemer. That is the hope that we have. Someone who comes and takes us from exile, away from God when we didn't know him, and brings us back so that we can know God again. So do you see verse 1? This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Just as there's two little words there, my salvation, God says. My righteousness. When you think of rescue, God's rescue of his people, it's God's initiative. It's God's work. It's God's timing. It's by God's grace and it's for God's glory. If you're a Christian believer here today, the only reason that we belong to God, that we can be called sons and daughters adopted into his family, is simply because of the grace of God. It's nothing to do with my family background, what I know, what school I went to, how much I know. It's all to do with the grace of God. Of course, God's people are in exile. You would have looked at them and said they had no hope, but God was at the center of their hearts all the time. He was there, even though they couldn't see it. So we're here where God speaks through Isaiah and says, there is hope when you're going to come back from Jerusalem. There is hope. There's a hope that they will be a people again. What did he say in verse 5? I will give you an everlasting name. You suddenly see the promise of Abraham hanging true. God has said to Abraham, I'll give you a land. Well, what does he say here? He speaks of his temple and his house, that they would come in and be with him again. He said to Abraham, you will be blessed. What does he say in verse 2? Blessed. What does he say in verse 7? I will give you joy. Suddenly, you realize that the promises he made to Abraham all that time ago are still true, and that God has been there the whole time. And that's why verse 8 is amazing, that last verse. The sovereign Lord. Remember, I've unpacked what that word means before. The fact that God is in complete control. It's he who declares... He who gathers the exiles of Israel, his people, says also, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. That is an amazing truth. I want to talk to you about this mountain. This is a mountain in North Wales. I love walking here. I love walking up it. Uh, Some of you will know this is a mountain called Penny Rowley Wen. That's not how you pronounce it in Welsh, but I can't do Welsh, so that's the English version, okay? Uh, it's at the, it rises up out of a great lake you see on the right hand side called Ogwin. Now I've walked up this a number of times. I love it and there's an amazing view at the top but it's hard work. Okay? There's a f- picture of a fes- fresh faced mark in 2007. I was doing a big 20 peak challenge up in North Wales and that mountain was one of the 20 peaks we had to do in 24 hours. It was a brutal challenge. We've been walking for 16 hours all through the night in the rain at this point and I didn't fancy walking up that big mountain. There I was at the bottom I couldn't see the top, and when you walk up this mountain, you walk over a rise, you think, I'm nearly there. And then there's a full summit, and you see another one in the distance. Ah, another one. And you keep going, and it's so discouraging, but when you get to the top, it's absolutely amazing. Now, when I stood there, having been walking for 16 hours, my feet were beginning to rot, I was absolutely in agony, I was exhausted. I didn't want to go up this mountain. And I couldn't see the top, but I knew it was there. And so I was able to set off in the direction and lead the team that I was leading. And we set off up this mountain to complete this challenge. Now think about Isaiah. When he spoke his prophecy, 
God enabled him to have complete confidence in what was in the future, but he couldn't see it. He wasn't there himself. Indeed, when he died, the prophecy continued to be true. But he was able to say to his people, keep going, even though you can't see the future, because I'm with you and I'm in complete control. So just as I carried on up the mountain, so Isaiah pointed his people and said, carry on up the mountain and trust me. And this is how prophecy works. Um, this picture proves that I won't be let into um, Jilly Sam's spectrum class. <laughs> uh, I tried drawing this on the computer this week. I wasn't having any success, so I uh, did it by hand instead. I want you to understand this picture, because if you grasp this, this will help you understand how prophecy works. Here's Isaiah on the left-hand side, Isaiah's time. He's speaking at his time, okay, 700 years before Jesus. And he's speaking about a hope to come, and that hope is partially fulfilled here. When the exiles returned, 538 BC. But he's also speaking here about a future hope, a great time in the future when Jesus would come, the great redeemer that's spoken of in Isaiah. But he's also speaking of an even greater hope, all the way up here, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's how prophecy works. It's a bit like the different rises up a mountain. It goes on and on into the future. And Isaiah was able to speak here, preaching hope for the near future, and the distant future, and the very distant future. Trying to help God's people to keep their eyes fixed on him. Well, what was the role of the prophets? The prophets pointed people forward to Jesus. What was the role of the apostles? They proclaimed Jesus. But together, what is their purpose? It's to declare to a broken world the greatness of God. When God called Isaiah, what did he say in chapter 6? Go and tell my people. And what did God say to the apostles? Go and make disciples of all nations. The mission doesn't change. And it doesn't change for us. You see, our task is to declare to a broken world the greatness of God. Now, one last thing I'm going to do before I close. When the prophets spoke, often they acted out a little drama to show people what they meant by what they were saying. So I want to do that now. I need to get to these green doors, okay? Lots of the prophets did this. They would look very stupid, but that's okay because the message they want to convey is important. I want to open up our big double doors to the church. Here we go. Here comes the sunshine. Now, the purpose of our church, God has not gathered us in here to close these doors and shut out the world out there. Why does God gather his people in here? It's to send us out there to gather people to come in here. That's my little prophetic drama. <laughs> but it helps us get the point of what our church is about. The church is not about us. It's not about being in here. It's about getting out there to a lost and broken world, to people who don't know Christ, and bringing them in here. Which is why our memory verse for the year, which is on sideways, just so you can stretch your neck a bit, <laughs> There we go, a bit better. What is our memory verse for this year? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It's exactly what Isaiah was teaching in this passage here. Anybody who will put their trust in him. And so you have the greatness of God. You have tiny me and you. But we're reconciled. We can know one another through the work of Jesus in our place. God is passionate about knowing you. And he's passionate about knowing the person who sits on the computer next to you in the office. 
He's passionate about the cleaner who cleans the toilets at your school. He's passionate about the politician who lives in your constituency. He's passionate about the little girl bouncing on the trampoline over the hedge in the next door neighbor's garden. He's passionate about knowing each of them just as he's passionate about knowing you. This week we've been thinking about the election, haven't we? Um, A friend of mine has got a daughter who's seriously, seriously ill. She probably spends six days out of seven in hospital. Um, She's very, very ill and she's very close to dying. And he wrote this week a blog on Facebook and he was talking about how hard it was for the family to see this very, very young girl this close to death every day. And she said, this man said, eventually modern medicine won't be able to help her. She's terminally ill. We just don't know the day and time, but the, incre- the threat increases every day. He's pours his heart out about how hard it was, but it was in the context of the election. He says, we have benefited from the most amazing medical system, whatever you like to think of it, that have cared for our daughter and loved her to bits. But this is what he says at the end. In any event, no election will produce a leader, a party that saves the nation. Right now, for us, as our daughter dies, things have been put in proper perspective for us. We need a leader who can and will raise the dead. And only one fits the bill. And we praise God that one day our currently ceaseless tears will cease. And my beautiful daughter will sing the praises of Jesus Christ without any threat to her life. Now that will be a morning in which the people celebrate with no fear of excess. May it be soon. This person has understood that there is a great God who is passionate about knowing us. And through the gospel that is possible.